Hello and welcome to this week's instalment of Nicholas Investment Insights. This week our focus is on the recent resurgence of the Pacific Peso or Australian dollar as it rebounds with vigour from its March lows, particularly against its primary rival, the American Greenback. Can this march upwards be sustained or has it potentially been caught up in a global market bear rally? Here to ask the question, is the Aussie dollar a coronavirus safe haven? I'm joined by our Chief Strategist, David Llewellyn-Smith. G'day, David. G'day, Tim. And our Head of Investments, Damien Classen. A quick reminder too, uh, before we get started, to subscribe on YouTube and click on the notification bell to be notified of when we go live or have a new webinar to watch. And follow us on your preferred podcast platform. And for those listening in live today, head on over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash webinar and leave any questions in the chat box below the video to have them answered live along the way. So let's jump into it. So our agenda for today, we're going to be looking at uh, the five drivers model, uh, the, uh, a quick look at the global and Australian growth, or uh, more recently, of course, Chinese growth and Australia's terms of trade. We'll then be rolling into interest rate differentials following up by investor sentiment uh, and some look at some technicals. Of course, the relative strength to the US dollar. Uh, and then finally, of course, wrapping all this up uh, in the investment outlook and how we involve these themes every day in the portfolios here at Nucleus Wealth. So to kick us off, I'll hand on over to the fellows for global and Australian growth. So yes, the five drivers model, which we use uh, as a way of determining Australian dollar fair value, uh, as well as you know trends and forecasts etc and you know we've seen a extraordinarily volatile and dollar absolutely falling out of bed six weeks ago and uh, and now getting up in a real rush um so is there f something fundamental in this or is it is it simply just you know part of this global bear market rally um so the first feature of our, our uh, five drivers model is global growth uh Chinese growth and Australia's terms of trade. Uh, on this front, um, obviously, you know, global growth is is uh, at kind of 100 year lows. Uh, we've seen an extraordinary accident, obviously, following the virus. Uh, and, you know, despite what markets are, are kind of pricing in as a V-shaped recovery, we think the rebound will be weak and take time for a number of different reasons, including, uh, you know, the primary one being the difficulty with containing the virus uh, as you go through what we describe as the dance to keep it suppressed, uh, but also some structural change we've seen with damage to the consumer, et cetera. Uh, and so within that, that basic thesis, we have a China was going into the virus first and therefore coming out of it first and you know it's now been open for for nearly two months post its lockdown and so you know in in a basic narrative sense with china leading the global growth re growth rebound in terms of timing that's obviously a little bit australian dollar bullish because uh, we get to to see chinese growth before we see it elsewhere uh, but we're still Pretty uh, bearish on the Chinese rebound as well. There's already mounting evidence that the Chinese consumer has not leapt out of the gates, uh, that there's very little pent-up demand. In fact, if anything, there's structural damage to the Chinese consumer. And so discretionary spending is very, very weak still uh, as the Chinese 
you know, duck and weave the virus themselves. You might see this as the Chinese private sector, its ongoing wrestle to not catch the virus. Uh, so, you know, just in that basic narrative sense, uh, if that is a tailwind now, it's not likely to last very long uh, because we think Chinese recovery will be muted uh, despite, you know, its stimulus, which is nowhere near the size of previous, uh, sorry, the GFC effort. Uh, but uh, is enough for it to get moving again. Uh, but not enough, uh, at this stage at least, to lift Australian commodities. In fact, uh, you know, the lingering damage that's been done to the Chinese economy has now started to play out in commodity prices. Uh, there, there was a brief period where, because of border shut closures and production shutdowns where some of Australia's bulk commodities rose, but that's well and truly over. And what we've got now is the two two coals, uh, which constitute about a quarter of the Australia in terms of trade, have been absolutely belted in the last couple of weeks. Uh, we've got thermal coal down at 2015 lows, uh, and coking coal is is rapidly following, almost down to 100 bucks now from, uh, you know less than half what it was this time last year. Uh, and so that's material damage to Australian terms of trade, to the budget, to uh, you know, national income, which will filter down over time. Uh, it's my view that iron ore will very likely follow them. Uh, I don't see it crashing in the same way the coals have, but I think it will weaken through much of the year uh, because of, the again, the lingering, lingering damage from the virus in particular, Chinese property pipeline uh, is well down last year. In fact, it's in year-on-year terms much weaker than it even was in 2015, uh, and it's struggling to recover. Uh, there's a huge Chinese steel overhang from production being sustained during the virus shutdown, and despite you know, that that huge inventory pile coming off, it is falling now. If you seasonally adjust it, it hasn't fallen at all. Uh, so at some point, that steel ha overhang has to be worked off. Uh, it might be done incrementally or it might be done in one one hit with a big destock. Uh, but either way, it means less iron ore that process it, transpires. David, um, so the the difference between the iron ore price and the coal, and the coke and coal price. Do you want to give us a bit more? a bit more flavor around around that why one's halved and the other one's um sure yep uh the, the main thing is you know iron ore's come out of a very supply constrained period uh where obviously we had vale lose an enormous chunk production uh and you know that uh, was exacerbated through the first quarter this year when we had a very heavy monsoon season both in brazil and Australia, and so we had very large losses on the supply side that largely offset, uh, you know, um, uh, demand falls. And the demand falls, you know, have been a bit delayed as well, and they're starting to come or come through. Um, Chinese year-on-year -year steel production's down, but ex-China, there's a lot of damage now too. Uh, but basically, there's been a, it's been a story in iron ore of weak demand eating, uh, equaling weak supply. Uh, we also had Kumba and South African iron ore go off 
online for a few weeks uh, owing to the virus shutdowns. So whenever we've seen a demand blow, there's been a, a almost a corresponding supply blow for iron ore, whereas in the case of coke and coal, all of those supply shutdowns uh, that transpired through the virus when China shut some borders and what have you were very temporary and Coking Coal was actually in the process of ramping up in supply turns as we went into the crisis. So it's basically those that difference on the supply side that's made the big difference. Uh, so, uh, yeah, as I mentioned, um, the monsoon supply ramp up and also all of this displaced ore from all over the place uh, as, um, you know, various blast furnaces around the world have shut down outside of China. So Farley, for instance, is now shipping more iron ore to China than ever, even though its overall exports are down considerably. Uh, so uh, all of those things make me think that uh, iron ore will basically just slide from here uh, and contribute even more to Australia's falling terms of trade. And if you glance at the chart, that's what you see in my red line, not the entire red line there. That's It's just the second second leg down uh, and then I, I have this line sort of diminishing right out to, to mid 2020s uh, for the terms of trade and that's that's more on the longer term supply normalization for uh, for iron ore and uh, you know China going X growth which is the other uh, <coughs> longer term outcome we see excuse me <coughs> from the virus uh, is you know deglobalization Japanification slowing China more quickly than it was destined to do anyway, uh, and so, you know, what that adds up to is a is a structural fall in Australia's terms of trade over the next kind of five years or so. But in the short term, uh, pretty heavy blow still coming. There are other dimensions that have helped, stuff like gold, uh, but it's not big enough, and you know, it's offset somewhat by base metal falls. Uh, and then we've had this LNG, LNG smash, but we were a big oil importer, so that's roughly offset. Uh, so that doesn't really affect the terms of trade. Uh, but, <clears throat> excuse me again, when you add all that together and you, you look at the closed borders and our reliance on immigration, education and tourism from Asia, uh, you get, I think, a pretty clear case for... Uh, you know, the, the trade surpluses we've enjoyed over the last year or so to, to flip to deficits, even though our own domestic demand will be pretty weak, in fact, very weak. Uh, so a return to a trade deficit, which is obviously bearish for the Australian dollar. Uh, so to sum that, that kind of driver up, like short-term bullish, while markets are focused on stories rather than data, but fading to a medium term and then long term quite bearish outlook for the terms of trade. So uh, flipping over to our next driver, which is interest rate differentials. Just just before we do uh, that, actually, uh, David, just had a question come through uh, and uh, thank you for this one. Uh, but just while we mentioned before LNG and, and oil, um, I guess this is probably not so much now, but looking to the future, uh, do you think the price of spot oil could be a leading indicator of global recovery in time? Thoughts on that one, or Damien for that matter? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. I mean, we've been talking about this quite a bit uh, in terms of you know, what are the pros and cons for oil right now. We think uh, global travel obviously is an ongoing headwind uh, on the demand side. That said, we 
where there's going to be more driving. And so, uh, well, more driving than there has been and, you know, more domestic travel with driving involved, as well as people avoiding public transport. But whether that actually transpires into a, a net gain in oil demand, we're still sure of. And then you've got oil supply on the other side, which is just flooded, and you've got these you know, supply wars and what have you. So uh, oil's very structurally troubled, but you would expect it to bounce as there's a global recovery. I, I don't think it's going got a big bull case. Uh, you know, there's just too much of it, and it looks like uh, OPEC and particularly Russia want to crush U.S., um, shalers, uh, even though they're about to get public support to try and stay alive. Uh, so, you know, like the, the medium term case for oil is not very good, but I mean, it's so low that you would expect it to rise from here as demand recovers. Yes. Hmm. Okay. okay. And, and, and the other question for oil is, um, uh, as David was alluding to, is, is that that supply side is, is very much driven on, on what OPEC's going to do. So if OPEC decide to leave the taps open, and that's going to keep the the oil price lower for for a lot longer um, that, than if they decide to, um, to to close it all up. So so while I'd sort of say that yes, oil will be a good indicator for uh, the economy starting to, the world economy starting to um, recover only insofar as not being manipulated or, or you know it's, you got to take out the the, the effects of what uh, OPEC. Yeah, great yeah. point. Yep, <clears throat> that's right. So. Okay, so back to our, our spread today, uh, our second driver, interest rate differentials. I mean, this is just the flows of capital around the world looking for highest possible returns, hot money, diving into your currency. Uh, Australia's enjoyed a fantastic period of negative spreads to the US, which has helped pressure the Australian dollar lower than the terms of trade would have suggested it should be for, for an enduring period. Uh, but that's now reversed and we've flipped positive with the US because, in effect, Australian interest rates are as low as they're going to go. Uh, and, you know, that's the that, uh, flip back positive. It was a mild uh, kind of um, bullish thing for the Aussie dollar, but the spread is still very low and so it's not particularly bullish. Um, and Australian rates aren't going to go anywhere, neither are the US, obviously, but... If anything, I would say, excuse me. <clears throat> if anything, I would say, Australian rates are, are less likely to ever rise again than US. Uh, you know, but at this point, you know, we're into this this realm of of kind of Jedi central banking and QE. Uh, you know, and on that front, Australia is just massively outgunned by the US, um, both both by uh, design, insofar as the Fed. Know, is is everybody's central bank, uh, but also because we have such a hawkish RBA uh, that is so far behind the times and sees, uh, you know, things like quantitative easing as as voodoo has been forced to do it over many years when it should have been there a long time ago. Uh, so you know, that's also a little bit bullish, the Aussie dollar. Uh, but I still think that... Uh, you know, if I can put this in this area, this is kind of either going here or the growth section, really, that Australian growth is likely to underperform any global rebound. A lot of difficulties in the banks because our household debt's so high. To me, it's buckles as well. Immigration revival struggles. 
you know, to make it even more difficult. And so it just means Australian interest rates are just stuck, stuck low forever. Uh, and so, you know, that's probably a mild bullish uh, or tailwind, if you like, over time because of QE. But there certainly won't be any great, great need for capital to rush in to Australia for interest rate return. And so in that vein, um, so we won't see the sort of the carry trade post GFC, uh, we're sort of pushing the dollar to parity and above in your mind? Uh, absolutely not. I'm about to go into that too yep. as well. Um, uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, moving into our next couple of drivers' sentiment technicals, um, the market's still moderately bearish uh, in terms of uh, positioning according to CFTC. Uh, that's bullish, of course, uh, uh, but it's not particularly heavily weighted. Uh, and, uh, David, it's worth just explaining that the reasoning behind that. So basically what it's saying is when, when everyone's all on one side of the boat, so if everyone's yeah. uh, particularly short the Australian dollar, then there's, there's, there's nowhere left to go. And eventually those people have to start buying back their positions, which is going to send the... Yes, right. that's right. But I would argue that the more important a measure of of sentiment around the Aussie dollar right now is is just the wild bullish action in stocks. If you overlay the Aussie dollar with the S and P five hundred, the correlation's very high, uh, and that that you know wild sort of bear market bid uh, has simply tipped into forex. I think, uh, which brings me around to your question there, Tim. Um, you know, a trader asked. Us yesterday, won't we just go straight back to parity like we did post GFC? Uh, and the answer to that is no, simply because you know, the conditions are very, very different. We don't have, uh, you know, the type of terms of trade boom we had back then. Where you know there was structural supply shortages in commodities everywhere. Uh, now there's an abundance of commodities in just about every space. There is enough iron ore, even though that the price has been holding. A reasonable level, um, I'd expect it to to be you know half to a third of what it was uh, post GFC. Uh, China was building only about a third of what it's building now. Is that about right? Or space? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Yes, I mean they're certainly building a, a lot more, um, but uh, you, you know the market balance for most of the economy, the commodities just isn't there, and of course. We had this massive LNG investment boom in Australia, which, which you know, forced the RBA, or at least the RBA, chose to hike interest rates into that as a way of, uh, you know, redistributing labour, uh, and and so we ended up with this huge uh, positive spread to this post GFC in this post GFC world, and so, you know, there were just massive capital flows into the currency. None of those things are about to repeat. So. I don't see the Aussie dollar flying north from here as it did uh, post GFC. Um, so we'll bring us to the second part of, of this section, which is technicals, uh, which I really just see as a anyway. Uh, but the technical patterns on the Aussie right now are very bullish. Um, it's broken an ascending triangle pattern. It's got something of sort of... Uh, uh, cup and handle formation, which is even more bullish. It's broken to the upside. Uh, so I just see those more or less as, as indicating, you know, that sentiment's very strong. Uh, but, you know, fair value has been blown away. Where, 
we went on a wild ride with a big Australian dollar undershoot relative to in terms of trade and the other major inputs into the currency. And now we're doing the reverse. We're going a major overshoot. Uh, Westpac has fair value at 61 cents. We're already charging towards 66. And you don't generally get enduring periods uh, above fair or below fair value. So, uh, no, in terms of sentiment, yes, it's red hot right now, but it's it's stretching the elastic, if you like, well and truly already. Hmm. Uh, so, a final driver uh, is is you know where where does the beast go next? The US dollar, obviously being the other half, major half of uh, the value of the currency, so plays a role in the value of the Aussie. Uh, and the safe haven role of the US dollar played out as expected. Prices. Um, it, it didn't didn't get a super spike, not at least not so far, uh, despite being very strong. Um, I think largely because the policy spot response was so swift, especially from from the Fed. Well, in fact, on both fronts, uh, fiscal and monetary, were both very fast. Uh, and you know, things like Fed swap lines uh, helped mitigate a lot of the U.S. dollar shortages that we see globally that make this sort of mad dash into the dollar when you know banking stress around the world uh you know scrambles to get a hold of us dollars if they want to repay their their foreign denominated loans etc etc um that said there is still a lot of stress globally and there is still a bid in the us dollar while with the currency uh, sorry with the the crisis rolling on uh you know we've flattened the virus curve but we've done so by creating devastating depressionary environment and uh, the jury is still out on on <clears throat> a million different fronts on that. Um, you know, the US has certainly um, stabilised capital markets more or less by nationalising them all, all the way down to junk debt. Uh, so, uh, you know, we, we've made progress, but, you know, we have global SMEs, which are much, much harder to bail out because they don't have access to, to capital markets. They're mostly bank lending. Uh, and, you know, we've seen everywhere that even when you give banks free money, they struggle to suspend uh, their processes in terms of giving that money away to SMEs. Uh, and so that's a, just an, an almighty shock that, that's uh, going to hit banking systems right around the world. We're still seeing heaps of emerging market stress, uh, you know, right down through, uh, you know, junk bonds, uh, despite the, you know, the Fed top lines um, and perhaps even more concerning for emerging markets a lot of them at least southern hemisphere versions are you know yet to, to face the virus full on uh, and they probably will be forced to overwinter uh, and so that's obviously a another potential shock or stress um, <clears throat> so both of those things I think have still got a pretty strong bid into a safe haven US dollar um, then you have, you know, the trade tariffs. We're not sure how it's going to play out in terms of the U.S.-China trade deal. Uh, they're at each other's throats over the virus. Judgment on that is, I don't think it serves either uh, the tyrant or the would-be tyrant's interests to uh, to restart the trade war. Uh, and so, to some extent, this is a rhetorical or a faux war. Uh, but 
you just never know how these things play out if especially if trump facing his election later this year finds himself falling behind uh, then you can expect him to play the china card in a very very strong way uh, and you, you just never know what can happen once the blood is up in these things then you can get accidents that you didn't see coming uh, and if we do get more tariffs from the US obviously that's a strong US dollar bullish signal in fact that's played a large role in its bull market over the last few years um, European fiscal stresses are still apparent as well um, we don't know what Italy's going to do as it heals you know the European bailout such as it is has been reasonable, but again, uh, you know, that's largely been support rather than stimulus. And as Italy comes out, it's going to need massive fiscal injections. Uh, and to date, you know, it looks like the rest of Europe wants to lend it that money. And will Italians want to borrow it? Really? Or will they want a fiscal transfer? Or if that's not forthcoming, their own currency. Uh, this is a very real question. Aaron, view, our view internally on this is this this, this time round, uh, this is a one versus zero scenario. Um, either Europe gets together with some, some euro bonds, corona bonds, whatever you like to call them, and helps out periphery, or it doesn't, and there will be very, very serious political consequences possibly leading to, to you know, further exits especially since you know, uh, Britain's already kind of succeeded in doing it although I guess you you could argue the jury is out on how that will transpire for it um, and then you have European banks which of course are, they're actually a much larger component of funding for corporates and SMEs than uh, than banks are in the US uh, very much higher I can't remember how much it is. It's like 80% versus 50, something like that. It's very much bigger. Uh, and so we have all of those banking stresses coming out of households, SMEs, et cetera. They're, they're likely to be much more difficult for Europe. So again, this blows back into fiscal uh, and, you know, the incomplete European project. And so what all that means is Euro, the euro uh, could find itself again under question in terms of its sustainability and so that's a big bid potentially for uh, ongoing bid for the US dollar. Um, converse to all those things, uh, if if we actually do manage to, to bumble through or sail through, uh, then you know, a global recovery will definitely see the US dollar fall, I would think. Um, with those other uh, uh, tailwinds behind it, it may not fall as much as we've seen in other recoveries, uh, but you know, with the Fed pumping, and the fiscal spigot wide open. Uh, it's just very typical for, for the US dollar to fall as capital starts to seek high returns on the periphery, you know, leaving the centre of, of capital markets in the US. Um, so in the, in the you know, decent global recovery scenario, we, we will definitely see uh, the US dollar fall. I would, at this point, go back to what I was saying previously about the Australian dollar, which is expect the Australian economy will very much struggle to keep pace even if there is a global recovery so I don't necessarily see that as a huge tailwind the Aussie uh, for you know it could fall anyway despite a rising uh, sorry falling uh, American dollar uh, if if the recovery is as poor as we expect so summarizing 
those five drivers. Just before we jump into the summary, Dave, I've got a quick question here. Um, will or has uh, the Fed QE prevented any US dollar squeeze that is typically expected in a global crisis, just while we're on that uh, US theme? Uh, look, as I said, I think it played the safe haven role. There was a squeeze, uh, but it, it, it definitely, the Fed's early action has prevented it from spiking, definitely. Um, so, yeah, I think the Fed has already, uh, to the extent that it's prevented that US dollar squeeze, uh, has contributed a lot to a potential recovery. And hmm. those swap lines played a big role. I mean, for instance, uh, in Australia's case, uh, you know, this, the, the day we got the swap lines was almost the, the bottom in the dollar. Yep. Uh, you know, there are a lot of other things going on, but they do definitely play a role. Um, um, <clears throat> One more. So, um, is the is the falling US dollar a bullish signal for US stocks? I well, that will depend on on the starting point. I mean, they're already so wildly overvalued that uh, it's it's quite possible you get a falling, uh, you know, a global recovery with a falling US dollar and a correction in stocks if they overpriced the recovery. Uh, Damon, what's it? I mean, forward PE is now what about 20, 23? 23, Damo? Yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's basically above any other time, us 40 years, ex the tech. Yeah, and I mean, there, there's always a, a multiple expansion when you go into a new cycle, but you know, this is extreme, and the, the outlook for profits is dire. Mm, yeah, so we're, we still haven't seen the bottom of. If prices no. didn't go anywhere, we, we'd expect that. Um, yeah, so prices are they are, we'd expect PEs to at least rise to maybe twenty-five. And so that's yeah. versus a, a long-term average of sort of more like maybe fifteen or sixteen. This is for forward earnings. So, so I mean, you could quite conceivably have a scenario where uh, US dollar was falling into a global recovery, but the recovery was the recovery was pretty lousy. Uh, and so stocks were were underperforming, like or U.S. stocks. That said, it might it might be the opposite. I could see it going either way. Uh, you know, you might get enough that liquidity tailwind might just combine with rebounding profits for for uh, you know enough of a push that a falling U.S. dollar you know again aided its uh, uh, multinational firms and helped boost their profits. So. Either is possible. Okay. Um, so, summarising the five drivers, um, basically comes down to short-term bullish action, and then a medium and longer-term bear market, the Aussie dollar, ongoing. Uh, so, China-led recovery, and the narrative is bullish, um, but not for very long, with bulks still to fall. Uh, local recovery. Uh, is bullish for now because we're ahead of everybody else on crushing the virus curve, but we've got winter, immigration problems, housing problems, SME problems, banking problems, uh, all ahead of us. Uh, so it's not a rerun of the GFC. Uh, credit spreads and QE are bullish, um, short term, and probably medium term as well. Uh, sentiments, very bullish, uh, short term, but again, I think as the bulks fall, that might might puncture that balloon a little. Uh, if uh, if markets were to roll back into 
um, discounting a less less glorious future, and uh, then I would expect the Australian dollar to simply crack and plunge again. Uh, as I said earlier, it's been heavily correlated with the S and P. Technicals are short term bullish, uh, and in my view, they're but you know kind of a measure of sentiment anyway. Uh, and then U.S. dollar bull market is intact, in my view. Uh, but if there is a decent you know, global recovery, we'll see a correction in that. Um, uh, but, you know, there's so many problems abroad that I wouldn't expect that correction to be particularly big. So um, the outlook might be higher yet for the Aussie. Um, hard to know, given this, this sentiment is... is uh, are very volatile, uh, could overshoot, uh, but into a recovery, despite global growth firming, I'd expect Australia to lag with an income shock, immigration constraints, houses, house prices falling, uh, and consumers suffering from both. Uh, and it doesn't look like the federal government knows what it's doing on the stimulus front. Um, you know, it's managed to bumble through the crisis through uh, two or three attempts getting fiscal right. And it's still pretty messy, but it, I mean, again, it got enough out there for it to be to matter. Um, but you know, it's it's mooted reform program to try and reboot the Australian economy. Uh, will will it won't do anything basically um, to help growth. I expect consumers and households to be extremely conservative coming out of this. We might get a pent-up demand pop, but I don't think it'll last. Uh, and so what, what will be needed to drive Australian growth will be a lot more fiscal spending uh, and not tax cuts, which will just get saved uh, or, uh, you know, by, by corporations uh, recycled to shareholders, not invested. Uh, so... That yeah, and part, of, part of that, part of that, David, is, is that whole um, that whole part about saying if, if you're suffering from a demand, uh, a shortage of demand, and by by giving a company a um, you know, a company whose whose factory is only running at sixty percent, giving them a tax cut, they're not they're not going to go out and build a new factory, or uh, just keep going with their existing factory. Exactly yeah. right, and and by doing so, you know you're you're constantly uh, reorienting income. You know, towards capital, away from labour, and you end up just making your demand deficits worse. So, uh, to sum up, I would expect if we went that way, that we'd end up uh, relatively quickly with twin deficits, as the trade uh, a surplus evaporated, and we'd ended up end up having to keep spending fiscally. As all those commodity prices fall, it'll be very difficult for the government to pull back on spending, uh, and so. You know, twin deficits are relatively bearish for a currency. Um, so, short, lower over uh, the new cycle, uh, or, or rather, I should say, longer term uh, into the new cycle, Australia's structural adjustment away from mining and Chinese income uh, continues as it sinks into Japanification, ex-globalisation, etc. So, short-term bullish, medium-long-term bearish. Okay, Dave, I've got a, uh, there's a series of questions here and they're all actually quite uh, varied topics. So I might just continue on the um, Australian theme here. Uh, what level of boost to the AUD is possible should Australia open for business earlier than the US? Uh, early May is being muted. 
Uh, well, I don't think Australia will open that quickly. I mean, the federal government is obviously pushing to, to reopen, but I think to some extent that's rhetorical because it's trying to bludgeon the states into doing it. If you look at the states, Victoria oh. is still very conservative. Uh, is leading Victoria, but its plan is also quite conservative. It's going to do a very staged reopening that uh, has weeks between each experiment. Uh, and so, you know, I think we'll come out of it relatively slowly, but undoubtedly we're going to come out of it first, you know, with China. And so that's why I say, you know, as this China led Australia on its coattails, uh, short term narrative that's, uh, that, you know, is what we see right now, uh, has legs in the short term. So we could definitely see an overshoot in the short term. But I don't see it lasting very long. I guess is the key. Okay. Uh, similar, similar theme here. Uh, will the AUD fall if we have a property crash here? Uh, well, and it fits with this this um, narrative, you know, which is short-term bullish and, and medium-term bearish. Because if we do have a property crash, obviously it's more like an L-shaped recovery for us, and we will lag what whatever kind of global recovery there is. Uh, so, you know, if we do have a property crash, I would expect the Australian dollar to fall. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Sure. And I think it's probably part of, part of that as well is just putting that the Australian consumer is one of the most indebted world. So, um, you know, it's, we are talking a little bit about binary outcomes before, but, you know, there's, there's that part of if it, if it gets too far away from, um, central banks and governments then then uh you know that'll crash regardless of what they do at, at, you know once you get once you get to a certain stage you know there, there's that whole part about if they can just keep it from bottom falling out of it then there's uh there's possibly some more strength okay great and just one one final one uh, a little bit out of left field here is it possible that we could have a second black swan on the way from north korea uh possible but uh, you know North Korea is is a is a roll of the dice I wouldn't be hanging any investment thesis on North Korea I mean it could blow up the world any minute of the day but <laughs> you know it, it probably won't and it's very very difficult to know even from the real experts what's going to come next North Korea. I mean, is Kim Jong-un on his deathbed? We don't know. Will it be his sister that rules? We don't know. Um, uh, we've, we've generally, taken, we've generally but, taken the view that that, um, it's, uh, that that China has a lot of say in terms of what happens, uh, in terms of how much trouble North Korea is making at any one point in time. So, um, yeah. yeah, and there's that. They've got to deal with their big brother. Um, so, yeah, I, I wouldn't I mean, I don't want to curse everybody, but I wouldn't worry about North Korea. Okay. All right. Fantastic. Um, we'll jump into the investment outlook now, fellas. Uh, but before we do, I've just got a couple of sort of market-based questions, if you want, just to get the ball rolling. Um, question here is, uh, is the value factor now irrelevant as every central bank demonstrated that they are open to purchasing just about everything to prevent a financial market meltdown? Uh, could the current dislocation between... Sorry? 
as of today, I think the answer is yes. There's, okay. no, there's no value factor anymore. There's a. <laughs> um, uh, look, I mean, I guess the question is, if staring down um, some of the biggest profit falls we've seen in the last 20 years or so, 20, 30 years, and we've got markets trading at, at um, on, on a valuation basis at, um, as I said, the US has only ever traded higher during the... Um, the, the the real blow off top of the uh, of the tech boom, so you know, the question there is 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 well, I guess the the answer right now is yes. The, the question is, um, will it always trade without without focus on value? And um, you know our our big take with all this is is really looking at the um, the small and medium business sectors, um, the, the central banks and uh, the the governments have, have really stepped in to try and make sure that uh, the large Globalization or large stock large sectors are, are, are um, sort of bailed out, and the Fed is in there trying to keep um, junk bond. So, but does seem to be short up, and it, it does seem as if they're going to spend as much as what it takes. Uh, you have seen a couple of companies start to fall over. So in Australia, we've seen Virgin. You know, the, the government didn't step in to, to save those, so they're, so they're still still going to see those fall fall down. And the other bigger issue to us is that. Um, you know, small businesses make up about half the economy, and then you add in medium businesses, and you, you end up with another sixty. You end up with about sixty to seventy percent of the economy um, in that small sector. It's a very hard sector to um, to, to bail out. You know, you know, if you start have to start um, bailing out, I don't, you know, tens of millions of businesses in the U.S. or and, and millions of businesses in in Australia, um, very very difficult to to do so in in a fair and effective way that doesn't just result in um, everyone trying to rot the system so um yeah that's that's the real key for us is 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 getting a gauge on what's happening in that part of the market um it's the part we don't think um that well we haven't seen central banks and governments can step in and, and bail that whole sector out um if if they do if they do come up with a you know it's money for everyone and every business gets a bailout and and universal basic incomes all around then um yeah, value factors dead for the foreseeable future. <laughs> but um, yeah, our take at the moment is, it, while it does seem to be dead at the moment, uh, there is that part about still haven't seen the effect of um, small businesses and medium businesses as they as you know, the unemployment kicks through and demand drops away, and and so um, yeah, that's where our our main concern. Okay, great. Yeah, thanks for that, Damien. Uh, one follow-on question here. So the market in Australia does not seem to have reacted to this week's poor earnings. Uh, no dividend from ANZ's example and capital raising. Uh, was it priced in? And earnings to price just looks weak across the board. This is a similar vein to what you've just been saying, I take it. Yeah, yeah. So And, and look, the banks in particular, um, yeah, that's where this you'll see this small and medium business is, is really going really to come Around and so the so the question is for the banks is is really in Australia um, uh, the banks don't do uh, small business lending in Australia. What they do is they um, they get small business owners to to put up security of their house. Really, so it's really just home lending with a with a with a um, the slight business tilt to it. Uh, and so issue will come as this, as we're looking at small businesses and 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 keep in mind that is usually take you know at least sort of 60 to 90 days well 90 days is usually the to to get um bankruptcies and 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 things like that flowing through unless unless they sort of pull the pin earlier um but sort of force bankruptcies and so we're only really just getting into that 
type of um, those ones now. So that's and that's what all these write downs were banks, um, you know, in, in expectation of it. Question then for the for the banks is saying, okay, I've just I've just um, closed on somebody who who spent a couple hundred grand setting up a new restaurant, and now the restaurant's um, you know been closed and then they've they've gone bust, uh, and I have have a uh, security over the house though. Do you find that the central, uh, the banks then start doing mass sales of of houses? The issue there is with they if they start doing that, then that then the whole thing starts you know then they get start getting big falls in house prices, which then means these other customers they've they've written uh, over the top of then then start calling into uh, having problems with those and, and people that are unemployed. So um, yeah, so it's a it's sort of one of those events that can, can spiral out of control, and so. Um, yeah, the, the banks is 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 it banks and and that small business sector is is, is, a, is reiterating that point is is really the key. Yeah. yeah. What's I just to add, I mean, Goldman Goldman's out today. An estimate that Australia's real unemployment rate is about nineteen percent. Wow. Uh, that that's if if you you know. It, uh, just for job keeper and what have you. So I mean that stuff runs out in five months, and and you know <laughs> it's it's a one hundred year shock. So uh, you yeah, know, and that's going. So you've had one in six people effectively become unemployed. Means one in six people, uh, you know, even if they do get another job at the other end of that, their, their first thought isn't going to be, uh, yeah, let me get out back out to restaurants and let me get out spending. Their first source is going to be let me just try and rebuild my uh, the, the money I've lost over the last few months and, and let me. They're going to be shocked. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's a it's just them down. You know, there's a I don't know three, four, five percent hit to to um, to, to uh, demand just not just from that. Hmm. Yeah, it's a real clash of the titans scenario. There's no doubt. So Looking to just flood liquidity and boost boost uh, asset prices, and uh, you know I, I'm actually a believer that markets tend to create cycles rather than necessarily price them. But you know, there are limits to what these central banks can do, and even governments uh, see those limits coming to bear on households and SMEs at this point, um, and so. Uh, you know, in terms of whether valuations matter, uh, then, you know, that's the other half of this kind of clash of the titans. You'll have a real economy with uh, extraordinary distress versus a central bank, uh, you know, edifice of, uh, you know, wealth and phony wealth and some real wealth, etc. And uh, it's not clear how those two will, will fight it out. Hmm. Okay, very good. Um, do you want to uh, just do a quick run through of the investment outlook there, Damien? What we're looking at in the portfolios? Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's it's. I think we've probably covered off on on those, <laughs> some of those uh, so those key points already. But but it is also that um, worth noting that. Um, so I said there. This I've thrown this one up there. Consensus earnings useless. They're, they're becoming less useless. They, they have um, they have fallen significantly. So. Uh, Globally, we're sort of down about 20 odd percent in terms of consensus earnings. Um, it's it's about half of what what the half of the falls we see, saw in the financial crisis. So, and and keep in mind they're they're still coming. The US is in reporting season now. 
um, I was, I was t- with David and I were talking this morning saying that in some ways there's a little bit of a circular reference going on some of the, um, some of the forecasting because uh, companies are basically, um, I guess there's a few, certainly a few Wall Street um, banks out there that are, that are talking about a V-shaped recovery still. And uh, what you're seeing is, I'm seeing in, as, as sort of reading through these company announcements, they're coming out saying, well, uh, first quarter was pretty bad, but, but we only just hit the tail end of it. Second quarter is going to be even worse. And we're really not sure, um, really not sure when, when things are going to pick up again. Here, uh, but, sent, but here's some, um, some brokers that are saying there's going to be a V-shaped recovery. And if that happens, then here's what our profits will be next year. And it's almost as if then the same Wall Street guys who did a V-shaped recovery are seizing on that saying, hey, look, here's a company that's also predicting a V-shaped recovery. Because the company is really, I've been reading it, some have no idea what's happening, and as, as, as most people do. But um, you know, it's always a bit of this circular reference and then up goes the share price from, from that. So, so I guess I'm, um, I think there's a lot riding on this whole uh, and a lot priced in in terms of this whole V-shaped recovery part. And that's the part where, where we've, um, yeah, we're sort of keeping an eye on these consensus earnings. Um, you're not going to see anything uh, from Australian companies. So you're seeing the banks at the moment, but you're not going to see Australian companies for another. Three. So yeah, a little bit harder to uh, to gauge how deep it is. Um, and then it, it is worth noting as well that you know we certainly are seeing in analyst comments, um, sorry, no, in company comments, um, thoughts around gearing changes. So uh, we've seen a couple of these Australian banks now um, who are. But, but that's happening in as well and you're not seeing the buybacks and so that's sort of uh juicing again that you know a lot of the, we had a lot of the growth we saw over the last few years was companies just gearing up and um those uh those buybacks to to, to sort of juice their earnings uh and so we're not going to see that uh, going forward for, for at least some time the deglobalization supply chain issues and sort of increased redundancies uh, we're starting to see at the margin there. Um, there's, I think it's more of an acceleration away from existing trends. But um, given the demand shocks, I think maybe what you might see is that there's there's um, see more uh, at the the capex. Sorry, maybe not as much capex as as what we were first thinking. Uh, that might that might be delayed for a little while, as because companies do tend to be pulling back on on spending new money. But it might be that they sort of closing down some of their Chinese. Um, and and spreading it into into other factories um, that that were running at at lower rates, um, and then finally that um, there are some positives coming out of it though. You know, in terms of, I think there's going to be reduced rent, and we do think that's that's probably while that's a risk in terms of the whole commercial property sector is as, as an extra down leg there. Um, that that is a positive for for, for companies um, and people finding new efficiencies and new ways to do things. So. That not every company is a loser within the within it, and there's certainly uh, you know a number of companies in in the the world that are benefiting uh, the the changes that that wrought. So yeah, I might, I might leave it at that on the investment outlook. Okay, yeah, very good. Well, look, um, terrific uh, show today, and we are uh, running almost bang on time. But I might just finish with um, one final question from our audience. Uh, from thank you to Sugarcane, uh, with PE ratios high and saving rates low. Where does the average Joe park some savings to retain capital or make small returns? And when do we come to investment firms like Nucleus once the dust settles? Yeah, well, so I mean, we'll 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 obviously talk our own book and say any any time's a good time to be to be investing with us. But but look, I, th- 
think the I think the issue for us is, and we can't see you know, magic earns out there that that um, uh, in, in the large capitalization stocks and, and large industries, but we can see opportunities uh, in terms of switching them. Do you think we're in a low return world now, and so we do think there's a there's a bigger need for, for sort of tactical um, investment over over the, the coming time. And so whether that means that you are doing things in currencies, uh, whether that means you you're playing a little bit, you're a little bit more active in terms of when you're in bonds and when you're not, uh, and whether it means you know within the stocks you've got. I mean, we've uh, get, basically our stock position at the moment is put um, three different categories of stocks. We've got our 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 pandemic ag- agnostic stocks. Um, and these are ones like uh, you know, your supermarkets, your software, there's some software companies, your, your consumer staples like your shampoo and cleaning and things like that. And so, and so they're the types of companies that, that um, sort of form the base of our portfolio at the moment. This other category, which is pandemic beneficiaries, and these are the ones like your um, some of your toilet paper manufacturers and and uh, you know, Clorox, which is one of the world's biggest, uh, certainly the US biggest. Um, produces bleach and and cleaning products. Uh, Gilead, which is sort of there about have it whether it's got a cure or not. Um, and and Essity, which is one of the world's biggest suppliers to hospitals of of, of uh, sanit- sanitation products. You know those types of stocks have really benefited from it. Um, having said that, most of those are getting really expensive. And so for us, it's sort of a matter of trying to put our portfolio with the beneficiaries and and um, agnostic and pandemic agnostic stocks at the right prices and trading into the quality the next step is um the the guys who have lost you know lost out from the pandemic and we've got a um we've got a bunch of those that are sort of sitting on our shopping list at the moment um i won't go into those because uh, i don't want to front front one our own positions but um you know these are the types of stocks in, in travel and leisure and oil and personal services the things that have really lost the most in the pandemic so um so when you when you do think that um and they're the ones that really while they've been repriced a bit in this rally um they, they, there's still a lot of bargains out there in, the, in that area. So um, you really do think that uh, the whole thing's fixed and, and rough running again, then, then you do need to be making that switch. Um, and for us, it's you know it's it's about trying to position people's portfolios so that we're in, we're intelligently positioned at the moment as terms of the asset allocation, but we're also within the stocks that we're buying, um, so that as the switch happens, that um, benefit then. Okay. Yeah. Look, fantastic. Uh, terrific answer there. I uh, I think we'll finish up there. So look, yeah. Thanks very much, fellas, thanks. for a good show, uh, and uh, everyone. Uh, yeah. Thanks for listening in, and we'll uh, look forward to catching you next week, Thursday, twelve thirty. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you there. Cheers. Well, that's it for now, and thanks for watching. If you like what you heard today, and you'd like to hear more, head over to nucleuswealth.com forward slash subscribe. Give us your email address and in return we'll send you a weekly email with new webinar topics, links for our podcasts and other news from Nucleus Wealth. I certainly hope you've got something out of today as I have and we'll look forward to catching you at the next one. Cheers.